Hello and welcome to Mastering Dungeons. I am your host, Teos Abadia, not Sean Merwin. Sean is overcoming a cold and trying to uh, get all his healing surges spent and all that so that he can make it to Winter Fantasy. But we have an awesome guest here, Graham Ward. Hey, Graham. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Fantastic. I'm so glad you can be here. Uh, you, you, you are a supporter of ours. And you've been a, a longtime friend. We've had fun playing at each other's tables. Uh, you've you've run some really great adventures for me. Um, so it, it is one. And, and we love your insights into uh, uh, all the discussion topics we have on the uh, Patreon Discord. So thanks. Uh, you're too kind. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> so, Graham, let's let's uh, uh, first kind of help people know who you are a bit. Um, I know you, you know, first and foremost was just as being a really good DM, running some really fun organized play adventures, and I know that you've written uh, AL adventures and and a uh, project that I recently backed. So, tell us about that and everything else you do. Um, you're also an actor. Yes, absolutely. So um, my kind of main, like, I'm the only actor on earth whose day job is acting. Uh, <laughs> I'm a stage actor with the Actors' Equity Association. So uh, I do like Shakespeare and musicals and contemporary drama and mystery and all that kind of stuff. Um, I live in Creed, Colorado, a town of 300 year-round residents where there is a repertory theater that draws in like 30,000 patrons over the course of the summer. Um, so that's kind of like my real world work, but I've been a dungeon master since I was 10 years old and <laughs> I'm a GM for hire. I am the content manager for Ghostlight RPGs, where we occasionally stream some role-playing games. I've written some games. I am the editor on The Last Caravan, which I think is probably the, the project you were talking yep, about backing. Yep. Um, so that'll be coming out uh, to backers and to for purchase pretty soon, sometime like in the next month. Uh, we got published by MythWorks uh, Publishing, so who produced uh, The Wild Sea, which recently won, I think, Best Writing at the NEs. Um, yeah, very excited about that. I do lots of stuff. I kind of like could just keep going, but I'll stop. <laughs> cool. Well, at the end of the show, we'll make sure to capture all of your links so folks can look you up and hopefully play a game with you, which I highly recommend. Um, so this I love week... that. Thank you. Cool, cool. So uh, this week, we have two questions from our listeners in our listener corner. And Graham, you get to now be on the other side of it. The first question is from Majidad77 via YouTube. Looking at last uh, episode where we talked about the, the question that Mighty Jerd had on, hey, I gave my players an obvious hook. Why didn't they just go off and want to do it? Why did they want to bring other people into it? And the comment from Majidad, Majidad is, that was such a compelling problem and solutions. The solution is largely about giving the players the willingness to trust the GM that they're not going to force a situation that will kill the party. Which leads me to the question, how do you get players to trust you in general to see the GM as the leader of the story as opposed to the leader of their doom? Uh, as a GM, I want to tell the story too. I don't want to lose your character unless they're ready to make a sacrifice. Rerolling a character is hard on the GM too. Help us build general trust with the players. Ooh, Graham, what do you think? How do we get uh, players to to trust us and uh, that we are a, a benevolent, fair GM? <laughs> it's such a deep question. It, like you might as well ask, um, you know, like how do you be a good person or get people to trust? <laughs> but I, you know, 
I'm trying to like think about how my rapport goes with my players. I'm sure like you'll have lots of insights. I'm really curious what you'll say. My my initial thought though is that a session zero is a time for you to establish trust mm-hmm. before the game starts. During the game, you'll have the chance probably to like prove that you <laughs> practice what you preach. But in the session zero, you get to kind of set forth and say like, this is my style. This is what I want to do. I think being like kind of casual, but also thoughtful is probably like a nice energy to try to project for mm-hmm. players. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, mainly like taking opportunity to to praise their decisions or creativity mm-hmm. that you like, um, try to be as supportive as you can. Like the dumb cliche uh, is like thinking about people as bank accounts, just as a metaphor that like, if you're withdrawing from the bank account, you want to make sure you're also depositing in the yeah. bank account. So like, if you're, if you're shutting someone down, or you're saying no to something as a GM, be thoughtful about that and realize that you should also be supporting probably more than you're saying no, and be really strategic and cautious about when you say no. For me, like I play with a lot of strangers, especially in AL scenarios. And sometimes people come in, with a lot of like gusto and great ideas and i have to say okay is this worth me saying hey let's let's like cool down your energy or let's redirect you to this did you check these rules sometimes you can rely on the other players to provide that stuff and allow yourself to more just be facilitator and and make sure that everybody's doing okay but think of yourself as like a positive role rather than a negative role i think that helps yeah, that's a great point. Uh, the session zero is absolutely fantastic advice because that is where you can you can actually speak out of character, you know, like like out of game and just say, like, I'm on your side. I'm excited to see what you guys are going to do with this, you know, and, and you can just state it right up front. You can say, like, I am cheering you on. I'm not an adversary. I will just sometimes play the adversarial creatures that you'll run into, but I'm not looking to, you know, see your dead bodies on the ground. Um, if it happens, it's hopefully because we're doing thrilling stuff and and because the situation led there. Um, the, the other thing I like to do, you know, sometimes the, the adversarial part can be challenge. And so one of the things I like to do in that session zero, and I'll often even do it in a survey before we even meet, is to say, what is the challenge level you would like? And you'll probably have a mix, you know, but you get to f- see what that spectrum is of someone who goes, yeah, I want to be challenged, I want to be pushed. And then people who go like, yeah, I'm not looking for that. I don't want to be worried. And, you know, I ran Tomb of Annihilation uh, campaign where one of the players really did not want to be hard pressed, but it was that kind of adventure. And so I had to check in a lot to make sure that they were okay. Cause they did say things like, I find myself thinking about whether my character is going to die, right? Like away from the table. And I'm like, oh, I don't want you to, you know, worry overly about it. And, and so, yeah, it, it's important to keep that in mind. If people know, if the players know that you're doing that, that you're thinking like that, they'll probably will relax a fair bit. Um, I also remember an adventure that I'd written that I ran at Winter Fantasy one year, and it was really hard. And the players were clearly just like, they were as elite a team as you get. Like they were all dwarves with all these synergies, synergies that stacked, you know, on top of each other. Clearly they knew their deal. And every now and then they'd made mess up and say, oh, I forgot to do the blah. And I'd say, well, do the blah. They're like, really? Like, yeah, clearly you meant to do it. You, you guys are like pros. Like, do the blah, right? And they'd say, go back and, you know, apply the blah to their powers or whatever. And, I, and they're like, you're the nicest guy. And I'm like, you're still bleeding a lot. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> as long as we're having fun. You know, in the board game world, sometimes like if you play with strangers, you run into situations where there's like table etiquette stuff. 
And I actually love those moments. I think some people might find them awkward, but for me, they're opportunities for me to show generosity, to show goodwill, to prove that I'm like not out to get somebody. Um, so like, for example, uh, some friends and I, we call it stouching, which is based on the name of a person who does this. This is when you like forget a rule, like what you're just talking about. And you're like, oh, can I retroactively do that even yeah. though my turn's over or whatever? Like being graceful with that, in my opinion, is a huge way to generate goodwill. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah, I think like, cool let people stouch do your mulligans yeah. you know at first right and then once you've established the trust i think you can be a little more careful about that kind yeah. of stuff try to be yeah, fair good point. yeah i mean and i think as dm what i'll do in board games is great because you're right that is such a like a b feeling like you'll see people at the table go like am i okay with this and it's like look come on we're just getting started <laughs> but with a with a yeah. you know game an rpg game a lot of times i find that um you know, I'm fine to reverse things. And if I'm in a situation, if I'm DMing a situation, I'm setting up a scene where it really matters that you can't back out. Then I just, on my end, I'm making sure that I'm really clear about it, right? So that so that the reversal won't be because I didn't explain things or, you know, the decision is the decision. And, and I think that's a real big difference. It's one thing to forget your, you know, plus two or your feet. It's another thing to say, Oh, now that I see that, you know, the chest is a mimic, I don't want to touch it. And that's where you can draw that line of like, no, no, you know, it's not like you just get to redo the game. One thing, too, that people I think are reluctant to do is to um, like we want to talk in character as the GM. Sometimes we want to solve the problem in the game. And this is something I think Mike Shea's brought up a whole bunch. And I really, really believe in just like, just talk as a human. Yeah. Don't be afraid. Like you're not going to ruin the immersion if you're, if you're t talking out of character in order to make someone feel more comfortable. That yeah. will actually reinforce the immersion in my opinion. Yeah. As DM, you can, is what you're trying to do this, you know, and as player, you can sort of say, here's what I'm trying to do, but I don't know if I'm understanding the setting, you know, the situation correctly. And yeah, totally. Uh, our next question is from George PR via Mastodon, and George asks, given the wild rumors about D&D &D being sold, probably being false, I was curious if you all thought Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast, was a good steward of the brand, and if not, where would you ideally think like it to be sold? <laughs> and, and this is for folks who maybe don't wow. follow the social medias. Uh, there was a rumor last week, which Sean and I looked at and we're like, yeah, we're not covering that. Uh, that was about D&D, uh, &D, uh, the brand being sold off. And depending on what video thumbnails you saw and how wide the gape on their mouth was, um, you know, it, they might think all of Wizards is being sold, which is really ludicrous giving Magic the Gathering's revenue uh, or whether it was D&D &D or what. Um, and it came from one article that then folks kind of analyzed and said, yeah, that's really unlikely. It's probably talking about video game licensing. And then actually Wizards came forth and said, we're not looking to do that. Or Hasbro, you know, someone someone came forth and actually made an official statement saying it wasn't happening. Um, but but this question's a great one, which is, you know, is Hasbro and Wizards a good steward of the brand? And and kind of if not, where would you want it to be sold to? Um I'll take this first, Graham, and I'm, I'm curious to see what you'll add to it. Um, it. It's a tough question, right? Because there are always going to be ups and downs to any ownership situation. Um, the ups are often things you won't see, right? So like the money to make a movie, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, how many role-playing game companies out there can just make a movie 
to see how that you know influences things or buy a Super Bowl ad. Um, you just can't do that, right? It, it's exceedingly hard. And if you were trying to just run D and D as a company, D and D, and have it fund its Super Bowl ad, that target alone would probably derail the company from everything it was trying to do because of how much money it would have to save and push aside and take from other places. And Hasbro can just do that separate from the business of D&D, just say, yeah, we're going to do a Super Bowl ad. We're going to make a movie and create these partnerships and all of this stuff. And it's wild. And things like, you know, we'll talk about the Random House uh, books. Those things are just at a scale that's beyond what any other role-playing game company can do. And in that sense, Hasbro is doing a great job of that. Wizards is doing a great job of that and really always has, right? Wizards bought D&D sort of as a childhood dream of the CEO, uh, but, but out of a real desire to see it prosper and do well. And I think that has generally always been the case. Um, there's always been that good intention. Um, Wizards has often struggled to know, like anybody would, what do you do with D&D? Because the problem is that D&D uh, has a, an entity of its publishing that if you take especially like say third edition and fourth edition sales, kind of doesn't really cover all of its costs. And it doesn't fulfill its brand promise, right? The idea that like, if you take Marvel, right? That's an easy one where you can just say, wow, somebody, somebody figured out how to take comic books and make them unbelievably lucrative. <laughs> and you can get it all on Disney+. Plus. And that potential is sort of what folks, maybe not to the, quite to that scale, but somewhere towards that is where you ideally, if you're Hasbro or somebody who would own D&D, you would want D&D to get there. How does that happen? Nobody knows. I don't know for sure. <laughs> so would someone else do a better job of that? And I don't know that I can really think of someone doing that. It's always dicey. In my day job, and I'm going to shut up soon, Graham, but in my day job, I see a lot of companies buy other companies. And I work for either side of those entities as, as those things have happened or after they've happened. It's almost always bad. <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but it really almost every time something gets sold and bought by something else, the people don't properly appreciate what it is. The people who've worked there feel like the rug's being pulled from under their feet. Uh, and it tends to be pretty bad. Um, it's hard. So I, I don't really I'm, I uh, would like to not see D&D sold. I think Hasbro and Wizards are generally doing a very good job of handling it. And a lot of it is just understanding how corporations work that a lot of times, you know, somebody at Hasbro might say, I would like to do a, do a digital thing. Give me a digital thing that grows a lot. And then it goes to the wizard side and the wizards say, you know, yeah, let's do that on this magic, the gathering side, let's assemble a team and D and D you assemble a team. And then the D and D group assembles a team and they can figure out with smart people that love the game. Like you and I love the game. They figure out, Hey, here's the digital things we're going to do. And they're pretty reasonable. Because that's often how it works, right? And if you look at D&D's history, uh, there's generally not a track record of absurd things being made, right? Things that, that the fans truly dislike as product lines or things like that. So, what do you think, Graham? Yeah, man, what a great answer. And like, you have an awesome perspective on the business side of this stuff. I think it's really important to differentiate whether we're talking about stewards of the game, mm. which is one tiny element of D, D as a brand and then you know stewards of, of course of the business side um you know of course my thoughts immediately went to the game like are they stewarding this game in a way that i think is responsible healthy helpful giving us what what we want and i think everybody will have a slightly different opinion on that because we all want different things out of the game we all play different ways we all have our you know 
opinions copyright symbol um, about how the the UA playtest should go, what we want 2024 revisions to look like. I think Teos, you and I are pretty similar in terms of like we how we imagine the process could have been mm. in terms of stewarding the playtest mm. and bringing out a revision. You know, a minor revision and announcing it as a minor revision could have been very very nice. Mm -hmm. um and then work on the more ambitious stuff later and give people kind of a promise that like once the game is starting to fail or dissatisfy then we'll <laughs> come up with a new edition that's bold and, and thoughtful and addresses the concerns that people have but yeah, I, personally i was very happy with 2014 D, D. I think like you know little erratas that have uh, come through have helped i think a couple more probably could have helped um, but I'm also, I think probably what a lot of us have been going through, if I may be so bold, yeah. is realizing that D&D &D can't do everything for us. Mm. And that, in my opinion, Wizards of the Coast, the way they've stewarded the last year of even just from a like a PR marketing perspective, I think it has been valuable to us indirectly or ironically because we are waking up, you know, as a community and realizing, okay, we can play more than one game, right. even if it's just on a limited basis, like, like you've mentioned in previous episodes, you know, like have your, your mainstay game and then play one shots of other stuff and learn things. And, and if this mm -hmm. is what gets us to do that, that's great. Um, I think 2024 <laughs> Thanks, probably will still be great. Yeah. Right. I know. So that's probably like an argument that they're not stewarding the rules of the game right mm -hmm. but in in a way like it's a lesson for us not to put people on pedestals yeah. and even a big corporation with a huge budget who has the most popular role-playing game of all time even they can make mistakes and we we don't we shouldn't rely on them and, and like build our identity around them and their brand yeah yeah, yeah that for sure and i mean i think sean and i have seen and sometimes because we see behind the scenes a little more um more occasions where you know, wizards or even the D&D team have strayed, um, you know, like in fourth edition, the attempt to move away from the OGL came from the D&D team, you know, the D&D team's manager, as it's been said in, in other places that I can finally talk about, but couldn't before. And and that's that's kind of sh shocking because we want to say it's corporate suits or whatever, but, it, it you know, it need not be. And and I think that the 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 missteps, it's really hard to know the full story of any misstep, right? Like maybe someday we'll hear the true story behind the OGL. Um, and it'll be fascinating if we really get to get that true story or, or at least close to the true story, right? How, how close can you get? But I bet there's a really interesting picture there that, you know, might cause a lot of reflection on all sides if you could really hear all of it and what truly was motivating folks, where they were coming from. Because it probably wasn't like, let's do this to destroy the world and the industry and all players and make everybody cry. <laughs> that probably was not the goal, um, but it can be really hard to understand, right? Uh, but one of the things that I've marveled year after year is that D&D &D manages to be D&D &D because it would be really easy for anybody owning it to go, hey, this doesn't make us enough money. Change it all, right? And instead, every now and then we'll get a thing like fortune cards. And you may not like those, but that's a tiny little experiment that doesn't really hurt you. <laughs> it does not actually hurt your soul compared to if they were to turn all of D&D into some you know, card-based game or something like that. And there are companies that would do that, right? They would just mangle it all to just see if it makes money. If it not, sell it. Yeah. 
if I could, you know, maybe like add or editorialize a little bit on the question, I just to turn around a bit, I would say probably a much more interesting and important question to us in our games is how are we stewarding mm. D&D as a community? And if so, taking for granted mm. that we're committed to D&D as a game and a brand and we want to help people play it, we want to make it a better place for people to live in the hobby. How are mm. we thinking about and talking about the game? And in my opinion, my soapbox is always that like we are we are trying to overcomplicate and pitch to people a, a much more elaborate version of what D&D is and what we need to expect mm. from D&D than we need to. In my opinion, if if they have delivered to us the basic rules of fifth edition, we have the game, you know, <laughs> like uh, we can talk about like the core rules. Yeah, they're probably more like what Watsi would tell us is fifth edition D&D incarnate. But in my opinion, like if, if we want people to be in this hobby and have a good time, we want to have a, a good experience for our players, we need to think about what is the most accessible, the most consistently enjoyable way for people to learn about the game, to be onboarded and continue to play it. And focusing too much on like, I like this splat book or I don't like that splat book. <laughs> this splat book is ruining D&D. You know, I think that stuff is a distraction and I honestly think it hurts the hobby overall. It does. It, you're right. It makes us lazy. It, it, it makes it so all we do is just punch at, at individual products instead of owning it, right? And and that's where the, the magic is always your table, your, your local store, uh, your conventions, right? Those are the things that make the community, community amazing. And you'll have way more control over them, right? You can control whether hundreds of people show up at a convention or a store, but you can't control what Wizards is going to make as their next product, right? And so yeah, how to be productive is, is something that sometimes is lost uh, in today's internet and maybe always has been, but it, it's, it's certainly out there. The other thing is just the perspective, like, and I've been looking at this thing, deck of many things. It's gorgeous. It's, it's, it's so amazingly gorgeous. It's a really neat product for the premium product that it is. It's really good. And, and, you know, yeah, we can poke fun at how the cards came out wrong initially or whatever, but, uh, but there, there is a lot of good in all these products, you know, glory, uh, uh, of the giants. I mean, really really nice product right and, and it got drowned in the the ai um from a company that's been trying hard to not use ai but it, it yeah it's unfortunate because sometimes we forget to enjoy those products and do the important stuff of community thank you graham for that very good um thank you to george pr and Majidad 77 for the questions now on to our news and commentary, and this segues really well into some of the things you brought up, Graham, because the D&D video YouTube channel has been sharing some glimpses into 2024 and answering some questions that folks have. Uh, I took a look at two videos. One was how D&D's 5e 2024 core rulebooks works with all 5e books. A tongue twister and grammatic challenge. Um, and it had a couple of goals that it uh, suggested for the 2024 release that we're going to get. The gateway products are better looking. They're easier to read. Uh, as good an experience as possible. So really speaking to a lot of those kind of core angles, Graham. Um, and they again said, you know, it's all fully compatible, which we, we knew they would say. They find the new options are exciting. Um, and they want to make existing material more exciting because of these things. So they, they said, you know, 
not only are you getting like a new thing that you can do with your class, but because you can do that new class feature, you might see other features in a new light and, you know, see all of your, your basically your whole character may feel fresher, right? Or your monsters may all feel fresher or whatever. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, they held up bastions and weapon mastery as examples of this, right? Where your game might feel revitalized. So perhaps speaking to this concept, I don't know what you think, Graham, of, um, you know, the, the game might feel a little stale. Well, this will unstalify it. Uh, I, I just would wonder why people think the game is stale. If mm -hmm. you're running new adventures at your table, unless you're running the same adventure with the same player characters, uh, you know, I don't know, but that's my bias. I should watch this video. It seems like it's tailor-made to address some of my concerns about 2024. Um, so I'm sorry to say I haven't watched it. I'm a, I'm a little bit like, yeah, I'm just a little bit in the mode of, of like, wait and see. I want to, like Sean has kind of said, I, I want to see the product and then I'll make my decision. I'll probably read some reviews. I have not decided if I'm going to buy into the 2024 revision. Yeah. No, that's understood. Um, and, and they're clearly trying to speak to folks like you. Uh, but but sometimes it's spin, right? Sometimes it's a little bit of spin, at least as far as I can tell. I asked this question, a question about this next thing on Twitter, and I haven't gotten an answer. Uh, Jeremy says once again that the book size is incredible. Combine, this is a quote, combine the three new books, which are the biggest versions the game has ever had. Three combined will be close to a thousand pages. And I find that fascinating because the current sizes of the 2014 books add up to 908 pages, which to me is close to a thousand pages. So if we're going to use bigger font and more art, doesn't that mean the books are smaller? I don't know. Uh, yeah. So, you know, it's a little weird. Like, I, you know, I want to say this is being said in good faith, but I don't quite comprehend how it works. Um, they will, they say, have new or changed encounter building rules, new way that treasure is being organized. Um, and this will also, I guess, be noted in the monster manual. So I wonder if monsters are going to somehow link to treasure more clearly um, and that they're going to try to address pain points like adding more common magic items. It was very funny. Uh, Chris Perkins just sort of says, we heard from fans that we have that they wanted more common magic items. So we gave them more common magic items. <laughs> I guess I would kind of wonder why the process is or why the pitch has to be more, you know, in my opinion, a bigger book is not necessarily a better book. I'm actually very much looking forward to the Dungeon Master's Guide. And that's the one I probably will will buy sight unseen based on what I've heard about it, because I, I do think I'm interested in what they have to say about teaching people how to run the game about what yeah. you know the, the culture and uh, lots of little like unsaid things that don't they're not extant in the text of the 2014 version um, but in my opinion you know I have some really big books on my shelf but they're not the ones I play the most they're not the ones I enjoy the most that's a great point yeah well in the second video they talked about the D&D playtest survey results and they you know again everything's so positive uh the ratings are really high couldn't be higher uh with the monk becoming highly approved in surveys uh the which they said you know it's now the most I think gain that any class has made uh beating out the revised ranger which had also had a great turnaround in its ratings they revised conjuration spells with this uh, stat block that's there. And they said that now has a high approval too. Um, and they did say, I guess, that this is the last player's handbook UA, though they, of course, continue to work on things internally. 
And they confirmed that that whole release date business was just a, a mistake that was briefly on Twitter. Um, those are never the internal dates and said they will still be working on the books in May. So, you know, still working in May, June, July, August. If they're going to hit that Gen Con type timeline, you know, we'll see. Maybe not. I mean, they're not even saying when the first book will come in. So we'll, we'll have to see. Um, Which is probably wise. I'm okay with them leaving it, you know, until it's ready. Like, just give us the thing when it's ready. Yep. Yep. Um, they kind of gave a little bit of a weird hedge answer of work continues on monsters and on new encounter building. This might be in UA. They're play testing internally. So like, man, we may not see that. Like, uh, I worry about that. You know, they're just afraid that we won't like it. And I'm like, well, that's important when we don't like things. I don't know. But I, <laughs> I worry that as they get closer and closer to the deadline, they won't want to put things out there that we're going to criticize. And that's, unfortunate because that's how you end up getting good results but i don't know i'm 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 very curious of course what will happen with encounters with monsters that, that if you had a thing i wanted to look at for the all of 5e it would be what are you going to do about the way cr kind of interacts with the game and i don't know you know maybe we'll never see it um also no word as to whether we're going to see bastion revisions um you know or, or did they decide that system's just fine know <laughs> yeah i wonder honestly about some of these things that are coming out later or may not make it to ua playtest it seems like there's a high trust environment around the designers there on the team and maybe they're in-house playtesting i think there may be a low trust relationship between that group and the ua i think they definitely listen they're definitely going through yeah. it but I imagine the stuff that they may not include in UA is stuff that they may feel that their feedback is is much more valuable, relatively speaking, than the UA feedback would be. I wonder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know how, how I feel about it. I, I would I would I would like to see as much playtesting as possible from as wide an audience as possible. And I I believe that in my day job when I work on tech projects or client projects or any number of things, I, I want lots of people giving me different perspectives. Now, I may take that and apply internal intelligence to it, but start with what how people reacted, because there's often a lot of truth, especially that first look at a system, right? Like if your first look at Bastions is really mixed, well, then that's probably not saying the right messages up front or it's the wrong approach or, or something that you need to tweak, right? So then you can come up with what that tweak is. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. All right, so next, we have a new D&D fiction series. Uh, this ties in again to just last, uh, two weeks ago, we were mentioning Random House had brought three D&D books after all the, you know, brouhaha of what's Random House doing. You know, they're not covering, they're not carrying the core books, but look, they're carrying all this stuff. In fact, they're carrying a lot more. So we get uh, a news of three D&D uh, books two weeks ago. Now we hear of a novel series called The Fallbacks Bound for Ruin. And this is the first book in a series detailing the exploits of a band of adventurers. They've got an Adiog companion. It sounds all very fun and enjoyable. It's not entirely clear to me how young a reader kind of target this is. It's clearly not like kids, kids, but maybe it's youngish, like high school or something like that. Middle school. I'm not sure. Um, but at least everything I read about it sounded interesting and, and fun and, you know, a, a fairly wide appeal. Uh, book is going to come out in March. It's written by Jaylee Johnson, who has written several D&D &D Forgotten Realm novels in the past. 
Um, so we've got a link to that in your show in the show notes. Um, I think we may also get on Mastering Dungeons a version to take a look at. So that could be kind of fun. Thank you to Random House for that. Cool. You um, know, if they were going to yeah. put an aberration in the group, they might as well have done a flump. Come on. Like, that what is, were they I thinking? Mean, this is why I invited you on the show is your pro flump <laughs> agenda. No, uh, but, but I, you know, I agree. Though I, I honestly, I love Adiogs too. I, Adiog is a great monster. It's just. And uh, if you get to play the paint Planescape Epic, there is the potential you play a mission that I don't know if Sean wrote this or Ekmengi, but it has a great use of an Adiag and, and it's quite the scene. It's really smart. So yes. re- elevating my love for Adiags even further. Um, so Random House also announced two other books. These are similar to books we've seen in the past. There is the Dungeons and Dragons Book of Concealment which despite that title, you, you wouldn't ever guess what it is really, but it's a hardcover journal with gridded pages for creating your own maps and includes a hardcover case that unfolds into a four panel Dungeon Master screen. How's that the book of concealment? I don't know, but for $24, you can find out. <laughs> uh, there is also the Dungeons and Dragons huh. Mimic Treasure Chest Notebook set, which has a kind of clamshell cardboard box stylized like a mimic. And then inside are five four by six inch blank notebooks. They have a different monster on each cover and come in a variety of interiors, including lined, gridded, and dotted. So you can store those things in the in the box plus your dice, pencils, and stuff. Twenty eight dollars. Um, both coming in August. So you know more of more from Random House that I assume these will be sold very widely. You know, and hopefully draw uh, disparate audiences to the D and D line. What do you think, Graham? I love this. This is what I want to see. This is them stewarding the brand well, yeah. in my opinion. It's true, right? And I live yeah. with two people under five who will love that mimic case. So I'll be getting that. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, I, I'm now at the point where I'm sad when I see products for kids and I don't have an excuse to buy them for my kids because my kids are now, <laughs> you know, moving on to college, one in college. You don't need an excuse. Senior in high school. I mean, no, I, I will buy them. <laughs> but I can't just pretend that it's for them and see them interact with it. And that does sadden me a little bit. Mm. Um, And in the uh, Mike Shea department of very happy is this next news about the foundry VTT being an official D and D partner. Finally, we could say. Um, So last week they announced a partnership with wizards to bring D and D five E rules and the Fandelver and below adventure to foundry. And you may think like, I don't know, this isn't 5e on all virtual tabletop platforms, sort of, but like officially, no. And it was not officially available for Foundry VTT. So they have managed to somehow work out some sort of a deal and they will be doing this uh, and they will be bringing the 2024 core rules. And in fact, that seems to be their emphasis. They're not really focused on making 2014 happen or carry a lot of previous things. They're working on 2024 and beyond. Um, so that they can uh, kind of, yeah, I think, you know, do smart programming of the VTT rather than, than trying to do all the backwards stuff. Um, this is a big deal, Graham, because it shows that maybe Wizards does think beyond their D&D beyond immediate uh, plans, right? Yeah, I'm surprised and delighted about it. I think it's wonderful. And I I hope that they'll do this in as many places as they possibly can. It's in their best interest and in ours and in everybody's to put D&D on every platform where it can be licensed, in my opinion. So this is great. A plus. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
Um, then an article on Kickstarter and pondering, Polygon is pondering, is Kickstarter down or is it up or what does it really mean? Which is hard to tell because of the pandemic impact. So this data, which comes from Tabletop Analytics, because Kickstarter did not share data this year, which is a change. Um, they have a number of takes on what the Kickstarter data shows. We had shared a, a, another analysis that was done by, by a kind of a fan uh, a couple of weeks back. And what they say is, in terms of absolute revenue, 2023 is slightly lower than 2020. It's about 10 million less than 2022. This is a slower decline than the big drop that took place between 2021 and 2022, which was $34 million lower. So you can kind of look, if you start with 2019, it's 176 million. It goes to 236, goes to 270, which is your peak at 2021, and then drops substantially to 236, and a smaller drop to 226 for last year. So what does that mean? Well, if you take the pandemic spike out of it, um, actually, it looks pretty good. It, it still looks kind of like a steadily steady curve rather than um, the, the mountain it kind of looks like right now. Um, the 2023 is 50 million or 28 percent above 2019. So if you thought 2019 was great on Kickstarter, well, then 2023 is even better. You know, so maybe this is all to be expected. But also they see that the average creator is seeing about a third less revenue on their projects. And there are about 900 more successful campaigns or an increase of 22 percent in campaigns. So maybe this is some sort of like some backer fatigue, uh, some limit reached as to how much backers will spend, and there are more projects, and so therefore less money to go around. It could be as simple as that. There's also the competition from Backerkit and other crowdfunding platforms. Um, you have crowdfunded not too long ago. What do you think about this? I, honestly, uh, I'm not sure my opinion is too interesting. I, I just think that it, things go up and down and it takes time for us to get enough of a perspective to really know what's happening. But I appreciate your insights and I'd love to hear what Sean thinks. It's a shame that he's not here. Yeah, yeah Sorry, Sean. He's not here and probably hopefully resting and sleeping. Um, I Yeah, it, it's you're right. There's only one way to know things like this and it's wait and look back and, and, and see what the numbers hold. Um, if all of these various numbers, whether it's drive through or, or uh, you know, any number of sales, D&D, anything, if, if it all kind of continues to go back to growing, that's amazing because we're already at really good spots compared to, I don't know, before 2019. So that would be the dream, right? I think is that if we can just get some increasing going on or some holding steady, we're in some great places. If we really crash, well, that's bad, but we won't know it till we're deep into it. And perhaps even looking back on it, so hard to tell. <laughs> Graham, uh, you know, if you're looking for a job, you know someone who's looking for a job. We've got a contract job on the D&D team, Associate Event Marketing Manager. And this came on our Discord, was shared uh, by Chris Tulak himself, who's a fantastic guy. The Dungeons & Dragons marketing team is looking for an Associate Event Marketing Manager, marketing manager to support our event activation plans that sounds like a superhero for in-store and consumer events, 12 month contract. Uh, you will coordinate travel plans of team members. So, you know, if like Wizards is going to Gen Con, you're going to coordinate all that, getting everybody into hotels and how they're getting to and from and all that. 
work with third party vendors to have things on site, be on site for two to three shows. Um, it is mostly remote. So other than that travel, you know, you can really be based everywhere, anywhere, which is really cool. Um, we have a link to jobs.hasbro.com where you can find that associate event marketing manager job there. Uh, and yeah, the manager for position for the position is experienced in organized play. Knows all about this would be a great mentor, enthusiastic as they come, great person to work with. So check it out if you think you would be interested in that 12 month position. Very curious what they'll be doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And what what the plans will be for all the various events and how they'll support it. Uh, the other thing is there is a small mention in there around stores. And I'm always just hoping that we'll get a D&D uh, encounters type program or something like that it would be really cool. So I'm always just kind of crossing fingers. We'll see. Yes. Same here. Um, all right. And now our creator and crowdfunding corner, we've got a bunch of these. So I'll try to help speed through this. The uh, first one is Kat Kruger. Uh, we were big fans of Kat Kruger's work and she has released the park job, a Ravnica adventure. She has worked on magic, the gathering and D and D in the past. And her latest adventure is quote, when a satchel from a high ranking Azorius Senate commander goes missing, a special team is sent on a covert mission to retrieve it. Their investigations lead the party on a hunt for the suspect throughout the 10th district. And it's set in Ravnica for third level PCs. Check it out. Uh, up next is Random Wizard, who had the opportunity over many years to interview RPG creators from the 80s and 90s. He has written them all up as a free download of 18 RPG luminaries uh, interviewed. You can find it, a uh, link on our show notes. It's really cool. Uh, the, the, I've read these interviews over time when he would like release them on his blog or in other places, and, but I still went and downloaded it because it's got some you know, insights like from folks like Steve Winter and just really neat to, to read. Um, now, this next one uh, it made me smile, laugh, and, and go, ah, shucks, which is called Release from the OGL Vault by Bent Goblin Press. And that OGL vault should be your first uh, uh, tip. It's an adventure that brings three to five characters of levels one to four to the city of Pente. Uh, Pente. It begins as a city adventure, evolves into a heist, and concludes in the dungeons under the mystery-shrouded OGL's keep in the borderlands of the city. The product page also asks you, how well do you know your D&D trivia? Because it's filled with Easter eggs related to D&D. It is, after all, the OGL vault. And Bent Goblin uh, sent us a copy of this. It was very kind of them. Thank you very much. Um, and mentioned, in fact, even in the, the product page, our Discord server. So thank you to everybody who helps the, the community be awesome, including you, Graham. And if you look at location I2, which I'm very proud of, you can find our names, sort of, and a very funny discussion of what we are like <laughs> from Bent Goblin's perspective, uh, both Sean and I, with somewhat different names. And it, it's, it's very fun. We, we, we're in a tavern, and it's, it's great. <laughs> so I, I, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah you've got to really face off against the dreaded ogle. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, another fan uh, uh, we are fans of is DM David. And he takes a look back at D&D's history from B1 to Pinebrook. Every D&D adventure that includes DM advice and what they taught. And I can only imagine both the joy David had and how much work he did as he read over all these products yet once again. 
to really find the ones and, and it's fewer projects than you might think that really speak to the DM and give instructional advice, right? That really say, here's how to handle these kinds of situations in addition to just providing an adventure. Um, so David walks through all these different adventures and shares the actual advice that they have, sometimes word for word, which is really cool and, and adds his touches to it. Uh, it includes one of my favorites, Vecna Lives, which has, you know, what for me was kind of like eye-opening feedback on how to set up horror scenes. I, back then, I had no idea kind of how to do it properly, and it changed everything. Um, then uh, Sean and I were very honored to have each one of our adventures mentioned, Cloud Giant's Bargain, which I'm really happy about because it initially wasn't really supposed to have any DM advice, and I thought to myself, boy, I think it really should, and Wizards signed off on that. And then Peril and Pinebrook, where Wizards did want this kind of advice uh, and recently came out. And so very nice of him to mention those and break those down. Do you happen to look at this by any chance, Graham? Uh, yeah, yeah. I love everything on DM David's block. He's just such a good like finger on the pulse of what's going on, but also great analysis and longevity. Like He has a pretty broad yeah. experience of observing the hobby. I just love to hear what he has to say. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great article. And there's so many pieces in there that are really worth reading. So I absolutely recommend go to dmdavid.com, find that and, and read through it at your leisure. Even if you just do a little bit every now and then you'll come up away with some good DM tips and approaches for different types of scenes and, and situations. Um, and then one last mention here, which is Tom Dunn, who's also a member of our Discord, wrote an article, Variability in 5e Attacks. And if you are a math nerd, rejoice because you will quickly be presented with an incredible mathematical breakdown of 5e monsters encounters and more all throughout his blog but including this latest with the math behind attack rolls and i i love it because i just feel um non-mathematically inclined uh when i read his blogs because they're so good at breaking down that math and the probability but at the end, he comes with a nice conclusion, and, and I'll, I'll share that here, which is the variability that comes from attack rolls is dominated by the attack roll, right? the roll of the dice. This can be improved by increasing the attack's chance to hit, but even at extremely high chances to hit, the variability of the attack roll dominates over that of the damage rolls. Therefore, the only practical way of reducing the overall variability from attacks is to increase the number of attacks, either over time or by splitting a given damage target across multiple attacks. And that's kind of really neat. I mean, it might be things that a lot of folks would suspect if they've looked at kind of RPG probabilities and so on, but it really speaks to that D20 being so swinging. And so the best thing you can do is not really give yourself plus or your monster, you know, plus two attack, but break up those attacks so you hit closer to that probability. Um, and he says that since the number of attacks made both by player characters and monsters tend to increase as their levels and challenge ratings increase, this means that the damage from attacks in lower tiers of play is inherently more variable than it is in higher tiers of play. This is yet another factor that contributes to combat feeling deadlier and more volatile in lower tiers than in higher ones. And great, right? And those are great statements to make, but you can see all of the math that backs this off uh, on Tom's awesome... Uh, blog entry really cool i'm in awe of tom i i think his blog is really cool so thoughtful in ways that like my brain can't even reach um but i like he kind of made a joke on the discord that uh this is an obvious conclusion but honestly i think it could be really useful especially if you're thinking about designing say a monster 
it might explain why Watsi has high CR monsters doing like four attacks that deal seven damage mm. rather than one big walloping attack every time. You know, the, the, we see yeah. some of that. And I, I, I've definitely heard some people say, why are we doing seven damage when you're at CR, you know, 15 or something? But that's why, because they're doing yeah. four or five attacks. Yeah, that could be. That could be that, you know, in the end, this is a better approach, a more even approach. Yeah, it's, it's neat. It's a neat way to look at it. Yeah. Um, well, Graham, thank you so much for joining our show on short notice uh, and helping us for the news portion. Um, folks who, who normally would now go and, and listen to the main topic where we'd be doing our Shadow Dark review. Um, we, are, we are not uh, going to do that this week because Sean's not here and, and I didn't give you nearly enough time to think about Shadow Dark. But, Graham, I'm going to say... Uh, do you want to share anything about Shadow Dark based on sort of our, our recent episodes or the conversations on Discord? You, is there anything you want to get off your chest, Shadow Dark wise? Well, uh, people on Discord know I'm I'm a big fan of it. Um, I've run it a bit. I've played it a bit. I'm really hungry for more. I think mm -hmm. that Shadow Dark has been really successful. And I think in part because it's capturing something. I, I think I hinted at this a little bit earlier. The idea that people are realizing Fifth Edition is more malleable and and sort of like some of the core design aspects of fifth edition can work well in an osr um kind of framework and kelsey's done a really good job of fortifying the osr elements of that you know for those who may not know like the the sort of old school um high lethality high randomness um the the play is what's happening at the table not what you planned on your character sheet that kind of stuff yeah. you know and i i think that there there are people sort of craving that right now yeah. maybe i don't know what the percentages are but a portion of the fifth edition community after the ogl crisis who decided <laughs> they would like to try other things are craving that and another yeah. portion are craving something more like pathfinder where it's more predictable more strat uh strategic more character build focused so I i'm just I've had a really great time with Shadow Dark and I want to have more and I'm so happy that it exists. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think Kelsey's done a great job. And I, for me, like I know that you and Sean are always thinking about it as a um, like a, a user manual and how it communicates <laughs> to the people who are using it. Um, you know, I, I just think in general, like it, this book, uh, if it didn't exist, I think the whole hobby would be poorer for it, in my opinion. That's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's it's managed to do uh, two things that I think are really good. One is where you were saying that point about how it's bridging 5e and OSR because it really kind of takes 5e and distills it down. Um, it, it's not pretending to not be influenced by 5e. And I think that's a really big thing. Whereas a lot of the OSR folks that I hear will just sort of be down on 5e. And this kind of says you don't have to be that way. You can be excited by 5e, but then make changes to it to have this different kind of experience. I think that's really cool. And just the ability that Kelsey's had to create community means that this isn't some small thing that some people are seeing. It means a ton of people are influenced by it. And, and that, that's exciting because, you know, what comes after this from all the people that have, that will do 5e and OSR, uh, 5e and Shadow Dark, Shadow Dark and OSR, and, and mix that kind of whole thing a bit more. And it can lead to more people trying out all the other interesting games out there like Morkborg or uh, Nave or any of these these right different uh, games that try to be a little simpler, a little different while still providing you some teeth to the experience. 
Yeah. And I'll say this too, that Kelsey has maybe even like unconsciously become a great figurehead for how the OSR doesn't have to be a place for where nostalgia or like bigotry reigns supreme. And, you know, some of those stereotypes I think are being dispelled by the community that Kelsey has set up. And I'm a part of that community. So I love it. I love seeing more progressive voices in the OSR and it becoming a place where it's less easy for bigots to camouflage themselves, yeah. uh, you know, under the guise of being nostalgic. Right. Under the guise of true fans or something like that. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's great. I loved listening to the the video we've linked in our last show and, and we'll link it next time as well, where just, you know, she is talking about, all of the different games that she draws inspiration from and, and sort of saying, you know, like, I don't know that my game's really original, but it's because there is so much in that OSR community that can be really exciting about really trying to come up with new, interesting ways that, that hit that particular angle of, of the RPG appeal of things like, you know, that exploration is hex crawls and it's random dice and it's surprises and, and, and the, the, the nature of the experience that you have, right? And trying to come up with different systems for that. And then you see a version in Shadow Dark, and that can be very inspirational to draw you into other approaches that are like it. So very cool. Well, Graham, uh, where can folks find you and your good work or even play a game with you? Thank you so much for asking. Um, I, you can find my blog at darkplane.com. And I'm on all the social medias as Dark Plane DM. Dark Plane was the campaign setting that I kickstarted in 2015. It was pre uh, fifth edition OGL. <laughs> so this was like in the dark days, a mm. uh, long time ago now. But, you know, my my focus is sort of uh, like horror character driven and and like player agency driven adventure. That's kind of um, my wheelhouse. Um, I'm currently on darkplane.com publishing bit by bit, or I should say developing bit by bit, a role-playing game, which will be free called 100 Dungeons. The idea is that it's sort of what maybe began when fifth edition, uh, the SRD went into the creative commons. And I thought, well, what if I was just going to kind of impose my sensibilities onto fifth edition, strip it down. And then, you know, then the Shadow Dark Kickstarter came out and I was like, oh, this is cool. This is, this is a lot of what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, yeah. if I were to compare it to Shadow Dark, I would say it's, it's more towards fifth edition. It's, it's like very transparently a fifth edition hack, yeah. um, but it'll be free. And the idea that I've had really is to sort of balance the pillars and so that means taking out some combat rules, simplifying combat also means making some more structure around things like exploration. Um, so yeah, uh, you can check that out, darkplane.com. Um, right now there's everything but the character classes and spells has been published and it will continue to develop it. And I'm gonna be play testing it uh, uh, this coming month. And yeah, so lots of stuff going on there. Um, if you wanna play a game with me, I work with Baldman Games. I'm currently running an open table Hex Crawl Underdark West Marches campaign that uses every Underdark set adventure that's legal for Adventurers League. <laughs> and every week they vote on which quest hook or which one shot they want to run. And then the group will, you know, whoever buys the tickets for that session who can make it will be going and doing part of it. And uh, that's really cool. It's people told me this campaign could not be done. And I was like, I'm, I'm going to do it. <laughs> So if you want to play with that, you can find that on um, the Yawning Portal website through uh, through the D&D &D site and Baldman Games. That's fantastic. Very cool. 
Uh, anywhere else? Anything else you want to share, Graham? Did we get it all? You got it all. Thank you so much. It's been a real honor, and I just oh, appreciate you so and the podcast so much. I'm a huge fan. Our honor to have you here. Thanks for all that you create. Looking forward to getting back to the Discord and having more fun, juicy discussions. Uh, thanks, Graham. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Tess. Bye. So thanks again, Graham, for coming on. Sean in absentia, thanks you as well. Uh, we want to thank everybody who helps us keep the lights on through our Patreon. Um, we so appreciate our Masters of Dungeons, all of our supporters. Special shout out to our Masters of Realms. Uh, you know who you are. You are fantastic. Greatly appreciate you. And our Masters of the Multiverse, you get this special shout out that I will do uh, because Sean cannot. Keith Amon of The Monsters Know What They're Doing. Thanks so much. Lou Anders, Lazy Wolf Studios, Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonnet, Merrick Blackman, Evil John, John Carney, Darren Chandler, Seth Eckel, Andrea Edmonds at Nerdernomicon.com, Nathan Fuller, The Mighty Jerd, Ben Heisler and Paige Leitman, Sean Hurst, Chad Jackson, Brian King, Jim Klinger, aka DM Prime Mover, Chad Lynch, The Math Magician, Eric Mengi, The Micro Ant, Sean Molly, Falcon Neal, Mike Olson, Mighty Zeus, Post Fiction RPG Audio, Robert Pazlay, Vladimir Prenner from Croatia, Chance Russo at Dragon Russo, Ross Sandberg, Andy Shockney, Krishna Simons, Tres, uh, I could say Tres, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, and Chris Webster. Thank you all. You can join us at patreon.com slash masteringdnd. And if you get a chance, check out on your podcast app, whatever you use to listen to uh, the podcast, there is probably a way that you could give us a review. You just need to do it once for any of the episodes, and it goes on there and really helps folks uh, see that there is some quality behind our work. There is, right? Um, and if you can subscribe via YouTube, you get to see our faces if that's kind of fun. Uh, but also, uh, you get to help us with those all-important algorithmicals. You can find Sean on the show so social media accounts at Sean Merwin. You can find me at alphastream.org. Uh, I have been posting a bunch of videos from Spelljammers. So if you are running a Spelljammer campaign and want to know, like, what does it look like to see a huge star moth Spelljammer ship descending towards you? You know, what does it look like when there's catapult fire going off against a giant astral seed? Well, I will show you the visuals that the Neverwinter MMO came up with. And uh, just finished that series with the last video posted today. So what are we going to do now that uh, we're done recording? Well, I'm going to hope that Sean gets uh, better soon so that he can get back to doing these important video closings. Mm -hmm.